Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the verticality of time. couple of things I want to do right off the bat. First, I want to explain a little bit about my potential misuse of the term verticality. I'm not speaking in geometric terms, and I'm certainly not referring to, in a, to NBA officiating. I'm referring to the concept that if we think in terms of things functioning across a horizontal plane, from time to time, we need to look upwards. This is going to be an inappropriate conversation show directly tied to one a couple of years ago. Inappropriate Conversation 61, The Impermanence of Time. Those are two shows that could have shared a different drummer, to be honest with you. I chose to go in a different direction because what I wanted to do in the first approach to the question of time was to essentially attack the concept of its permanence and to ask us to take a slightly different perspective, to look at things as we might see them if we were millions and millions of miles away in space, where would, we, where would we think of the timeline from that point of view? Or if our planet rotated at a slightly different speed or at a different angle or at a different distance from the sun, would we have different ideas about time? Simply to challenge the notion that from a universal perspective, and this is true whether you take a religious point of view or a scientific point of view, what we consider to be time is definitely not permanent. And in episode 61, I took a look at it from a strictly philosophical point of view, by and large. But to start off with this one, I want to take a quick look from a religious perspective, and I want to start by sharing a quick word of scripture that I've shared before. It goes like this, from John chapter 15, beginning at the first verse. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, is Jesus offering to his disciples, in this case speaking directly to disciples, a perspective of what God thinks about the question of our ability and our skills, but more importantly, our relationship. It's fashionable sometimes, especially these days, for progressive, liberal Christians, in response to the religious right, to question whether or not it's appropriate for us to be always speaking about a personal relationship with God. That that concept of a personal relationship has been hijacked in some situations by the religious right. And I think that there's a, a risk or a tendency to want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But to be very upfront about the religious perspective I'm going to offer in this show, I'm going to speak in terms of time from this perspective of abiding. Because abide is both a vertical and a horizontal experience of time. I have felt that sense of abiding many times. 
and I want to speak to it religiously, but I also don't want to speak of it solely in that way. In Inappropriate Conversations 142, I spoke about the meetup that was one of the central pieces of our vacation trip to the United Kingdom, and our specifically our time spent in Leeds. And I don't know that I did a good enough job of describing that experience. I would understand somebody who would say, hey, six or seven hours in the same place doing nothing more than having a meal and sharing some snacks and doing some drinking. Well, maybe that might to some sound horrifically boring. But I've, I've got to tell you, I honestly feel like interacting with at least 20 other people during that time, I came away with a slight concern. Concerned enough that I actually asked my wife for her perspective on it. That it didn't feel like I was communicating well enough. Or as openly as maybe I really would have wanted to. Or did I play favorites and leave people out? I came away from that experience with a sense that, despite the fact that I was getting to see Richard and Allison of Rich and Allison's Super Happy Fun Time and Do Ask, Do Tell and other shows like Movies You Should See, I don't know that if I spent... I don't feel like I spent as much time with them as I wanted to spend. And yet there was a quality to the time limited though it was. So that quality on the one hand is this notion of abiding. I mean, I think a lot of us were simply there a little bit awestruck at the fact that all of these people were in the same place at the same time. And it might have seemed unlikely that that could be true. I know that I've spent a good deal of that time simply just soaking in the experience and the fact that it was happening, almost. But... To the degree that that sounds like it's a negative, it wasn't. If anything, I'm saying that six and a half, seven hours wasn't enough time. And part of the reason I think I say that is that's the way I always feel when the encounter is based more on this sense of abiding than on anything else. It didn't feel like a newspaper reporter interviewing a bunch of people that he knows has a story to tell and he wants to get more of that story, wants to get to the bottom of that story. It wasn't that at all. And there wasn't anything, there was no um, ulterior motives. There was nothing in it for anyone. We were there together, hanging out together, because we wanted to be. Now, in previous inappropriate conversations, I've shared quotes from other people, John Phillips in particular, who has a line about this notion in John chapter 15 of abiding, could be spoken as loosely and as freely as Jesus saying, hey, let's just hang out, you know? No plan, no agenda, I'm hanging out with you, you're hanging out with me. We are down with each other in that sense. But what I want to do when I take a look at it from the perspective of time is go beyond just that that one moment. Because I think every Christian from time to time has that feeling that you're really connected, your prayer life's working, uh, you think the Lord is giving you direction, you're hearing that direction, you're following that direction, and it's bearing fruit. But there's also times when that's not necessarily true. And this notion of there are times when one thing is true and times when another thing is true, and times where neither is true, the, the, the times changing on us, gives us a sense that we're on a horizontal arc. It may not be a straight line, it may be a very squiggly line, but it's nevertheless a perception that we have of it being horizontal. And part of the reason that I mention Inappropriate Conversation 61 right off the bat is that First, there's a chance I'll do some repetition. I may be repeating myself to a certain degree. And you know, while that's not ideal, more than a couple years have gone by. So it's not inappropriate, I don't think. But the other thing is I think I need to lay that foundation because I want, I want to build upon it. 
It was actually C.S. Lewis, who I quoted in the earlier podcast, who spoke about the notion of if our experience of time is a line on a page, then we have to think of God's perspective as being the whole page, or the whole room, or, well, literally, the whole universe, is essentially the theistic worldview. And when you start talking about God's perspective being that different, that's what leads me to say I want to call it out as being from our limited ability to comprehend that vertical. It's a straight-up understanding of time as opposed to an across understanding of time. Now, I'm not speaking in what I would call pure metaphysics here. Uh, I don't I don't come to this from a paranormal perspective. I don't believe that it's uh, that there's anything wrong or short-sighted or limited about people perceiving their experience of time to be 100% truly linear. And I probably share the same amount of skepticism that most people do when people start talking about things like being able to foretell or see the future. I'm not a read your horoscope any day, much less every day type of person. And yet, I have shared in past inappropriate conversations moments in my life when I was able to know things I should not have been able to know, to predict things which were not inherently predictable, or to almost, for want of a better word, foretell. How do you deal with that when you've gone through a period of months, and more than one period of your life of of months, of having those sort of experiences where you just sort of know what's coming and no one else does because there isn't a good mathematical reason to predict it's going to occur. It's easy, I think. I put easy in quotation marks, but it's easy for Christians to hide behind what that might mean and to refuse to offer any explanation and simply lay it at the feet of God. Say, well, it's the Holy Spirit or it's the uh, quality of my prayer life as it happens to be happening right now or something else. And I, I refuse to take that shortcut even senior year in high school, refused to take that shortcut. My attitude has been that there ought to be an explanation, and maybe one day there will be an explanation, and when there is, I'll understand it more fully. And if that explanation post-death, for example, is as simple as, yeah, it was God all along, then I'd be happy to accept that. But I don't want to play a God card in any conversation that stops the conversation from happening more than willing to talk about my faith, more than willing to talk about my faith experiences. But to me, you can almost tell that you're dealing with somebody who is afraid to talk about their faith if they use references to that faith or to God as a way of shutting down conversation. Lines like, the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. Not a conversation starter. That's a conversation ender. And that's absolutely not something that I ever want to do. So I'm not going to quote-unquote blame any past experiences that I've had upon God. What it did lead me to do, however, is to explore. And to say, what other explanations might there be for a couple of different things, hitting them from a couple of different angles? One, explanations for concepts of predestination or uh, the existence of evil, or you know, all sorts of things related to death and after death, that whole category of faith-challenging questions. And the other, far more personal to me, is what if somebody sincerely did have experiences, or sincerely believed they had experiences, that were of a foretelling nature, 
what would that tell us about time, and how would we come to understand it? Now, I've wrestled with this topic, obviously, for almost three years now. There's a fairly big gap between the first time I spoke about time in this manner and hitting it again well and truly as a podcast topic. And part of that is because I don't think I want to walk through what all my thought processes and considerations were. I don't want to hit it from that direction. I think I want to hit it from a much more what-do-I-believe-now kind of an approach. Now, there are past episodes that you could use for some sort of look back and say, well, hey, what happened between quote-unquote then and quote-unquote now? If you really wanted to try to get an understanding of my perspective, and I could point you in, in three direction of three podcasts right away that would give some hint. Number 79, a farewell address from the Mexican mountains. Number 80, Revelation Weekend, I think is the name of that one. And number 90, Moments of Epiphany. All of those would give you some sort of a hint, I suppose is the way to word that. Some sort of a, a way of approaching the question of, well, what got him from that place to the place he's at now. But I really want to focus instead on where I'm at now. Because I think it helps me when I'm dealing, even inside Christian circles, answering questions that come up about the questions of predestination. Do you have a um, Calvinist viewpoint or more of a Wesleyan viewpoint? And how do you how do you navigate through those? I'll explain those concepts in just a second, because that really is how I want to speak to it at first. But I also think that in that answer, we also get some insights into what it truly means to talk about necessary being, or God, or first cause, or even the universe as a concept, when we're speaking of time. So hopefully I won't dwell any more backwards on trying to shore up the idea of the impermanence of time. If we can't accept as a given that our concept of time is not as, well, it's not as much of a given as we take it to be, then please just go back and listen to the other podcast or seek out the writings of people like Boethius and Norman Kretzmann to sort of get the point-counterpoint ideas there and kind of wrestle with it yourself. But I think it's enough to say that none of us really believe that there's something truly permanent about the numeric assignment we give to time. We all know that it's relatively random, that somewhere along the way, somebody put a stick in the ground and decided that there was going to be a 24-hour day. There easily could have been a 10-hour day. The hours just would have been a lot longer. So there is something inherently random about it, and I cover that elsewhere. So what are the concepts between this notion of Calvinism and the opposite of Calvinism, whether it be Armenianism or Wesleyan, a Wesleyan viewpoint? What are we talking about there? It really comes down to this notion of predestination. Now, C.S. Lewis talked about it, and I quoted him in the previous podcast, but I think it's worth restating a little bit just to kind of point out that the predetermination perspective, and it's one that you see a lot of people who make arguments um, from a skeptical perspective about Christianity use, and of course they're making a mistake because I think that at best they're only speaking to a small slice of Protestant denominations who make the assumptions that some presume are true of all Christianity. The presumption is this, that if God is all-powerful and all-knowing and always present, then he already knows what I'm going to do tomorrow. And if he already knows what I'm going to do tomorrow, then I don't have the ability to change it, because a perfect being can't be wrong about this stuff. So the perfect being who knows everything and knows tomorrow, because being always present, he's, he's already in tomorrow, that perfect being knows what I'm going to do tomorrow, and therefore I'm locked in. It has been 
predestined. And the perspective of C.S. Lewis, and really he's just quoting other church fathers for centuries, uh, Anselm, Aquinas, Boethius, by pointing out that, hey, just because God may know what's going to happen tomorrow doesn't necessarily mean that it has been determined. Because if we take the concept of omnipresence seriously, what it means is that every aspect of time, every corner of what we call time, is now to God. It is concurrent. It is, from a theological perspective, not horizontal. It is vertical. And even, frankly, speaking about it from the perspective of of any measure of time, a millisecond, a nanosecond, is in itself a huge exaggeration. Because now means something much more than anything that could be measured. By the time you've measured it, it's over. And therefore, you've missed the point entirely. But just to make it a little bit easier, if we draw the thinnest line we possibly can across a piece of paper, and we say the far left-hand side of this line is my birth, or my first conscious awareness, and the far right-hand side of this line on this piece of paper is my death, or my last moment of conscious awareness, allowing for things that rob the the mind before the body dies. Um, I think all of us understand that in modern medicine, that's not just somewhat common, it's a very real risk. But even if you narrow it to say, hey, between maybe the age three, and say for the average person age 77, that there's this window where you're conscious and you're aware of everything that's happening, and you believe that things happen to you sequentially, and there's a separation across the graph of when things occurred, some things occurring in a very short interval between them, and other things happening at a, at a very great interval of distance, and that because we move across this line, again, in our perception horizontally across this line, we have a notion that some things haven't happened yet, and other things are about to happen. And from the realm of human experience, that's absolutely true. Anybody who claims that they're not functioning across the piece of paper in that direction isn't being honest and shouldn't be trusted. But for someone to suggest that that's the only dimension, well, that doesn't make sense. We already know that scientists are working on the concept that there's more than just four dimensions. There may be more than a there may be more than a handful. We could be talking about a dozen. We could be talking about dozens, plural. And therefore, the notion that there are multiple dimensions certainly supports the idea that we ought to be thinking not just in two dimensions horizontally. At the very least, we should add a vertical perspective. And once you add that vertical perspective, now you're getting a little bit closer to what I believe is the mind of God. I believe it for several reasons. First, I've studied the philosophy of religion, and I've come to be more persuaded by this argument than other arguments that have been and could be made. But part of it is my personal experience, because in some ways, this argument backs up the experiences that I've personally observed, that I've had, for want of a better word. And it explains how maybe things don't always function strictly horizontally. And obviously, if you have a limited amount of perception then maybe you never see things in any other way than straight ahead or straight behind you. But if you had what we would grant for the sake of argument, in the case of a necessary being, an eternal perspective, an omni-type perspective, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, then your ability to see things horizontally wouldn't be a problem at all. So the answer that I think I hinted at, maybe didn't do much more than hint at it a few years ago, was that truly 
time either does not exist or exists just as well vertically as it does horizontally. Now let's talk a little bit about what that means to say that it exists vertically, that there's a verticality here. And in some ways, the best analogy that I can come up with is it's as if everything that you ever have done and everything that you ever will do, and this may be true beyond an earthly existence. It may be, if you believe in reincarnation, it would be everything you've ever done in every life you've ever lived, plus every life you're ever going to live, including the moment of nirvana. It's everything. Whatever we define everything to be. From a Christian worldview, this means that we may come to see that the part of our life that we have experienced that we remember is just the beginning. But to understand it fully in an after-death perspective, we need to see it as something other than horizontal. So there's there's um, multiple ways of looking at lifetime, I suppose. But even if we just narrow it to just earthly existence, or maybe even just the part of earthly existence that we're capable of remembering. So again, let's go back to this notion of age 3 to 77, or some other random number we could pick, and say, what if that was a portrait hanging on a wall? And a portrait hanging on a wall in a gallery that was clearly put together by an artist whose touch is so unbelievably grand, I guess is the word I'm, I'm tempted to use, that it would change our perception of art to such a degree that we would look around the rest of the gallery and say, why are these scribbles here? Something so impressive, with such depth, for want of a better word, that looking at the picture tells a much more complete story. In some ways, like the difference between seeing some of the truly great works of art, Renoir, Van Gogh, uh, Monet, as compared to anything that I might have put together in kindergarten. That that distance between finger painting in kindergarten as a kid with almost no artistic talent whatsoever, in the case of me, lined up against the work of Salvador Dali or someone like that, where you might say, hey, I can get lost in this other guy's painting, especially when you compare it to the work of this quote-unquote kid who had no idea what he was doing. Well, imagine that we take those same artists that I just mentioned, you know, Degas and Rembrandt, and say their best work, their most artistically impactful work, their masterpieces look like something a kindergartner did on a bad day in the art segment of their kindergarten coursework compared to the picture in the gallery I'm talking about. Because I'm talking about a picture in a gallery that in addition to being on some level, just a freeze-frame moment captured in time, very two-dimensional, very much paint-on-canvas, tells something that is so deeply meaningful that you feel like if you understood, not the artist, but the subject of that painting, that you would suddenly be comprehending 74 or 75 years of experience and knowledge, but you'd be doing so simultaneously, at the same time, as if it had already happened. This is not unlike some of the, well, the reference I made in the previous show to Kurt Vonnegut in Slaughterhouse-Five, the perspective of time that the Trout Famidorian characters present to Billy Pilgrim. It's not unlike that. But to me, it, it runs deeper than that, because they were still seeing the experience of a life as a caterpillar stretched across like, uh, I believe he makes a reference to the horizon of the Rocky Mountains. I'm talking about something that in the blink of an eye, or in something infinitesimally smaller than the blink of an eye, 
all of that information crammed into a single image. The verticality of time suggests that everything you've ever done and everything you ever will do is already known because it's already happened. And your experience of it is perhaps an echo of that moment of what we might, for want of a better word, call creation. And what I'm going to ask you to do on the other side of this is just play along with me a little bit. Accept that concept as a given, as a premise, for the rest of what I'm going to say. In part, because from an inappropriate conversation's perspective, this concept explains so much of what it is I believe and how I live my life. Again, I've had the opportunity in the past few weeks to meet dozens of people who knew me well enough to know that they wanted to spend some time with me. Clearly, the way I live my life is not you know, reprehensible in some way. So there's something to it that living your life with this understanding can certainly yield, well, it can yield good results. It isn't the same thing as pure determinism that says it doesn't really matter what I do because it's already been chosen for me. No, this concept of being part of a work of art hanging in a gallery provides a certain responsibility, not just for the artist, but also for the subject. But exploring that responsibility requires getting a little bit of grace here, a little bit of acceptance about what do I mean by the given. And our payoff on the other side will be finally speaking of Vonnegut as the different drummer that he has really all along deserved to be recognized as. Dan Carlin, it's hardcore history. Give you an example of what I mean. Ever fought an elephant in hand-to-hand combat? You, your relatives, your neighbors, some acquaintances get together on your street. I'll give you some swords and some spears and some javelins, and I'm going to put an elephant on the other side of the street with one guy on top of him, and I'm going to tell you to go get each other. Put that mental image in your mind for a second. The events. The war between Nazi Germany and the communist Soviet Union. If you took that out of the greater scheme of World War II and just looked at it by itself, it would be the largest war in human history. The drama. And what I said to my friend who asked me, what I thought an Apache raid, the aftermath of an Apache raid was like. I said, imagine you were one of the police officers that was the first to show up at one of the Manson murder scenes. The deep questions. What's that person thinking about? What's on that person's mind? What do you think about one minute into a crucifixion? Get more hardcore history at dancarlin.com. So what's built upon this particular premise? First, perhaps it is possible in certain situations for there to be, either through a, a prayer life or through psychic event of some sort, um, perhaps some sort of trauma, that it is possible for somebody to be aware of factors which others are not yet aware of. Maybe they haven't happened yet, or maybe there's somebody's simply looking at things from a different angle, slightly more vertical in their perspective of what's going to come as opposed to a purely horizontal perspective of what's going to come, and quote-unquote, predict the future. I've never for once believed that it made sense to refer to anything I've ever experienced as seeing the future. I've called it out that way, almost always jokingly, in the past. But I believe instead of it being that, it's really more of believing that through prayer it's possible to get an insight into what's about to happen, not because it's about to happen, but because it well and truly already has. So, how does this deal with the problem of evil? How does this answer the Arminianism versus Calvinism question? Let me start with the second one, because I think the second one's pretty easy. One side says that God knows the future, and therefore everything you do or will do has been predetermined. 
So if you look at it from the perspective of salvation, you're already either elect and saved or you're not elect and not saved, and nothing you do can impact that. Your salvation is assured. There's no, you, you can't go so far off the rails that you would ever change it. Or if you did, then it was just evidence that you were never part of the elect to begin with. It's sort of a tautology. It's a self-fulfilling, circular piece of logic. And that, in essence, is Calvinism. But there's an equally sort of you know, logical issue that I've got on the far extreme, the opposite view of that, which basically suggests that somehow an omniscient being that's omnipresent has no idea what's about to happen. And that somehow our behavior can change the knowledge or the mind of God. Now, if I have people who don't have a theistic worldview, they won't have any problem with that at all. But that's too easy, isn't it? It's really too easy to say that, hey, because I don't believe there is such a thing as a God, I don't have any problem believing that his knowledge is somehow flawed. Again, I took a pause there a minute ago so that we could be on the same page and say to have this particular inappropriate conversation, you need to grant me a few things. And what you need to grant me, if I'm going to speak to this division within the church, is that there is such a thing as a God and that God is a necessary being and it has these these principles related to relationship to time, relationship to knowledge, relationship to power. You just have to grant me that. Otherwise, there's no point in having the conversation. And what I would say to the Arminian side of the argument is, if there is a God, and if that God is a necessary being, and of course, if God's not a necessary being, then what are we talking about? We're either talking about two different gods or we're talking about heresy. But if God is a necessary being, then I do not have the ability to do something that would change that knowledge. Now, the, the reason that this works, and again, these aren't new ideas. These ideas go back to the 5th and 6th century. They're very, very old ideas. They weren't ideas that, to our knowledge, to our recorded record, Jesus spoke to in any real direct way. But by the time the church became mature enough to actually have any sort of authority, these questions started popping up, and these questions have been getting answers for centuries. And the answer is that if that future point in time If tomorrow, the next day, the next day, and if three days ago, four days ago, six years ago, were all already done, and it already happened instantaneously, and God was aware of it, because God experienced one infinite now, and we're just beginning to see that unfold before our eyes. And we think of now and then, and future, whereas God only thinks of now. So what this means from a practical perspective is... I don't put too much stock, although I try to be patient, I don't put too much stock in arguments about God being responsible for the evil in the world or for uh, things related to cause and effect somehow being things which are uh, his to control and therefore his to blame. I don't worry too much or uh, take seriously at all those who suggest that when a tornado hits a particular town, it's God's judgment against something. Whatever happened when that tornado spun out of control, or in some, what we would call future day, another tornado spins out of control and levels several houses or buildings, was not the result of some sort of punitive cause and effect. Because all of the things which might have been caused and might have been affected are, from God's perspective, done. They're the now. They've happened, or they're happening. And there is no sense in which you can necessarily say that a being who is observing all of these things across a span of time happening, is responsible for part of it happening, but not another part of it happening. There's a responsibility in the sense that a group of creatures with free will was let loose upon an instantaneous now, 
and some of those creatures in this now are going to do good things, and some of these creatures in this now are going to do bad things. But just like we would not call a painting beautiful if the only color the artist used was white, there will be light, and there will be shadow. There will be depth, and in some cases there will be a relative degree of shallowness. But when you're looking at the painting, you can see that all of those things are not because something is about to happen. It's already happened. Now, to try to explain this in my personal life gets a little bit tricky, but I think where I would start is to say that I honestly believe, strap a lie detector to me, I'm quite sure I'll pass it, I have no doubt in my mind that my wife is more beautiful now than at any point in our previous experience together. But I'm not naive enough to believe that there's something magical about now and some future time is going to be a diminishment of that now. Now, granted, there is a moment of mature understanding and a moment of premature or immature understanding. And that immaturity, you can understand somebody looking forward as a young teenager to somebody in their mid-20s and saying, oh, there's the pinnacle right there, and that after that it's all downhill. And you can even understand very immature adults looking backwards and saying, hey, you know what, back in the day... She was all that in a bag of chips, but now I've just got this, you know, these crumbs in this empty container. No, because understanding the verticality of time makes it very easy, and I would say almost truly effortless, for me to see not only all that ever was, but to have some anticipation of all that is to come. And if that relationship is healthy, it should almost always be true that the person that you love, you are going to be as in love with them as you've ever been and ever could be now. Now, I don't want to, the word love, I've called it out in the past, is a, it's a dangerous term. We misuse it a lot. We make it somehow synonymous with like or synonymous with lust. We don't respect what that word truly means. And we get our feelings hurt because somehow we feel like that, you know, if, if you love your spouse and you're not allowed to love your parents anymore, you're, or, or what you, you may love your brother and sister, but that's not really the same thing. We should stop calling it love. It's ridiculous what we do to ourselves, including some people who lose, who lose their grip when you start talking about love in the realm of friendship. And I've spoken about that before. I may speak about it in a future show. I don't know. But it is possible to talk about friends in the same way, using the same term, because love doesn't mean merely like and it certainly doesn't mean lust. So inside the confines of whatever relationship you have, whatever love you have, whatever abiding you are doing, inside that, it should always be a little taste of this eternal now. And this is true even if something, quote-unquote, bad happens, even if somebody is severely scarred, or they lose a limb, or they're you know, fight, currently fighting the ravages of disease, or what, whatever the case may be. If you're focused on the superficial, you're living truly on the horizontal line and nowhere else. And again, I, I said before, that's okay. I don't, I don't want to take an accusing voice to anyone who only perceives time that way. But the verticality gives you a completely different point of view. Because the verticality, at least from a human perspective, our ability to comprehend it, is still built somewhat on these arcs of I know where I am, and I may be able to have the mental acumen to think a hundred feet up into the air from there. And that hundred feet up is going to form a triangle if I go back to age three. 
when maybe I first remembered something for the first time. And in theory, it's going to form another triangle out to some indeterminate future point. And from those triangles, I've got places where I'm looking at the whole relationship inside that perspective. Maybe some of it's good, maybe some of it's bad, maybe some of it's ugly, but it's true. And the truth is always ultimately going to be pretty, to use an old cliche. So when you're looking at everything that was, I mean, do you do I go and hang out with some friends that I first met online and spend time dwelling on this face-to-face meeting is a little more awkward than the online the first online meeting? I don't give it another thought. For one thing, they're two different things. For another thing, it's part of the same relationship. It's a different part of the same relationship. And it's the current, in this case, it was the current part of that relationship. And the current part of that relationship was, in its own way, a work of art that I wouldn't be able to experience if I wasn't in that gallery at that time, staring at that particular part of the wall and taking it all in. I think we're going to find that this is true when we look at our lives as well. That is, at least people do better at it when they look backwards. They look back on their career and they say, you know what, I'm, I'm a better cashier now than I was when I first started at that store. Or I'm a better planner and organizer now than I was when I first got out of college and had that first job. We, we speak in these terms, and these terms reflect to our minds perhaps just a progression along a flat piece of paper, but I don't think so. I think that they're a little more triangular than that because they involve stopping and looking not just backward but also upward. So imagine, if you will, that you weren't just looking backward and upward, but that you were looking forward and upward as well. Because as Christians, we're, we believe, or we're supposed to believe, in this concept of eternal life. And some Christians, Christians that M. Scott Peck may describe as stage two Christians, only think of it in this very flat sense, that I've put all my answers on this test. When I'm done, it's going to get graded. If I did good, I'll go to heaven. If I did bad, I'll go to hell. That heaven is this um, ethereal, greater than it could possibly be thing that I don't understand. And hell is this horrifically got to be real and dangerous and smell bad horribleness that I don't really understand. And at no point is there any throughput there because to them there's a fork in the road. I would suggest, though, that what theism actually teaches is very different from that, that this concept of eternal life includes with it a notion that we will continue to know everything we have known, that you don't throw away your work, so to speak, here on earth, and that we'll be continuing to be perhaps developing or deepening the painting that is our life even afterward, and that that's a concept that I think throws a lot of Christians off, but it didn't necessarily throw the early church fathers off, for want of a better expression. They simply didn't choose to spend a lot of, if you'll pardon the pun, time on it. But if you look at time from the perspective of, I can't blame God or the devil or anybody else for what I do with my experiences, because everything I have experienced and everything I will experience is not only within my control, but it has already happened. That puts a completely different sense of pressure on you. It's not behave right, because if I don't, I'm going to go to the terrible place. Or behave good, because if I do, I'm going to go to the wonderful place. It's I have already built whatever work of art is going to be left behind and pointed to as Greg 
Do I want that to be good? Do I want that to stand up? Or do I want it to be not particularly impressive? Not worth anyone's time? And it's for that reason that I believe that having a vertical understanding, and not just a horizontal understanding of time, actually has as much impact, and probably more impact, on what I might describe as good moral behavior, or at the very least good relationship building, as any fear of judgment could possibly provide. I know I kind of said I wouldn't do this, but if I'm going to call out Kurt Vonnegut as a different drummer, I'm going to want to quote Slaughterhouse-Five. It might be my favorite work of fiction. If it's not my very favorite, it's certainly on the list. And although I'm sure I've shared part of this quote in the previous Inappropriate Conversations Exploration of Time, I'll do it again here. Quoting, The most important thing I learned on Tralfamador was that when a person dies, he only appears to die. He is still very much alive in the past, so it is very silly for people to cry at his funeral. All moments, past, present, and future, always have existed, always will exist. The Tralfamadorians can look at all the different moments just the way we look at a stretch of the Rocky Mountains, for instance. They can see how permanent all the moments are, and they can look at any moment that interests them. It is just an illusion we have here on Earth that one moment follows another one, like beads on a string, and that once one moment is gone, it's gone forever. When a Tralfamadorian sees a corpse, all he thinks is that the dead person is in a bad condition at that particular moment. But that same person is just fine in plenty of other moments. Now, when I myself hear that somebody is dead... I simply shrug and say what the Tralfamadorians say about dead people, which is, so it goes. That actually isn't a quote from Vonnegut's book Slaughterhouse-Five that is most on my mind right now. The quote is actually much more simple and much more subtle. It's just this. Everything was beautiful and nothing hurt. As I mentioned on the Mind the Gap episode, I took a six-hour train ride a few weeks ago between London and Glasgow, as we were, as a couple, going from England to Scotland to Wales on a long vacation. And I was worried that that six-hour train ride might feel long and dull, tiring, or burdensome. And it was anything but true. And part of it was, we were still, you know, in the early part of our trip, you know, fourth day in, maybe. And we're still like, holy crap, I can't believe we're here. But the other thing is that everything I said a minute ago is true. I'm sitting with somebody that I want to be sitting with more than anything in the world. And in the history of the universe, that is the one thing that is more true than anything else. And everything else that we were experiencing was the background of that painting. And the fact that we were experiencing all these different landscapes and uh, seeing sheep. And we were passing sheep at a time when newborn lambs had just you know come into the flock. So you have all the, for want of a better word, you have all the babies running around. It was overwhelming. And a song was running through the back of my head, a song that I've heard many times before, a song that I first heard for the very first time live in concert. And that creates an interesting relationship with a song when you encounter an artist for the first time live, and therefore everything that you learn about them later from seeking out their back catalog or or watching clips on YouTube is built on the foundation of that first experience being, again, more of an abiding type experience. But the song from... Rosie Golan, on her album Lead Balloon, is called Everything is Brilliant. And essentially, her chorus is, everything is brilliant, 
and nothing hurts. I can't help but to think that that turn of phrase is in some ways an homage to Vonnegut. It would be a coincidence if it wasn't. And yet, that song was so powerful in my memory that while we're you know, riding the rail, taking the train several hours north, I decided, well, at first I want to listen to that song. So I called up my MP3 player, found that, dialed into the artist, dialed into the album. But at some point along the way, I said, hey, you know, for a long stretch of this particular trip, I'm going to listen to uh, just a random shuffling of what's in her catalog. But really, I think the number one reason that I was drawn to that song was that I was drawn to that idea. And the idea, as much as you can give credit to Rosie Golan as a songwriter, really has to go back to our different drummer this week, Kurt Vonnegut. Wikipedia describes Kurt Vonnegut as an American writer. In my opinion, he's much more than that, but we'll get to it. His works such as Cat's Cradle, Slaughterhouse-Five, and Breakfast of Champions blend satire, gallows humor, and science fiction. As a citizen, he was a lifelong supporter of the American Civil Liberties Union and a critical pacifist intellectual. He was known for his humanist beliefs and was an honorary president of the American Humanist Association. This is the introductory description for the uh, Wikipedia entry of Kurt Vonnegut Jr. And it really, I don't have any quarrel with anything that it says there. What's truly interesting to me is what's hidden between the lines. When I talked about Norman Kretzmann as a different drummer the first time I chose to speak of time, I was talking about somebody who may have spent uh, time in his life in serious doubts about religion and doing a lot of exploration of theism in particular, but ended his life as very much a Christian, as very much a, a theist from a philosophical point of view as well. That's not going to be the case in Vonnegut's situation. And yet, if I call him out as somebody who you know, had ties to the Council for Secular Humanism, but regarded himself as at least an agnostic, one of the books that I took with me on the trip, and one of the books that I, I wanted to finish reading before I did this particular inappropriate conversation show, was Palm Sunday by Vonnegut. I was intrigued by Palm Sunday for several reasons. Um, one of them is that he actually took the time in the memoirs sort of section of the book to grade all of his own previous works with letter grades, which I found to be incredibly humorous, including giving a letter grade for the book he was actually write, writing at the time. But the thing that interested me most is the, what you might call the title track of Palm Sunday, was Vonnegut addressing an Episcopal church. This particular church had a habit of inviting someone who was not the pastor, not necessarily part of the church per se, to preach on Palm Sunday. That was the one Sunday a year in the custom of that church that they invited an outsider, or in this case, even a non-believer, to do the speaking. And in the book, he shares that sermon from 1980. I'm going to refer to a couple of passages here, just because I think it gives you a sense of, well, first off, I don't have a litmus test. You don't have to pass some quiz or to say all the magic words in a creed to capture my ear. If you've got something important to say, I will listen to you. And uh, Vonnegut certainly had important things to say. But especially this. Here's how he opened up this sermon in 1980. Quote, I am enchanted by the Sermon on the Mount. Being merciful, it seems to me, is the only good idea we've received so far. Perhaps we will get another idea that good by and by, but then we'll have two good ideas. What might that second good idea be? I don't know. How could I know? I'll make a wild guess that it comes from music somehow. I have often wondered what music is and why we love it so. It may be that music is that second good idea is being born. 
But here he is, talking about how much he loves the Sermon on the Mount. And frankly, if there's anything that's obvious from a scripture perspective, uh, from just listening to inappropriate conversations and not even following me anywhere else in social media, it's that I love the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably what I'm going to quote more often than not if I'm quoting scripture on my own accord and not answering a particular issue of the day. If I'm speaking to people on Facebook at the inappropriate conversations page there, which is listed as a cause, or on the Walk the Earth page that I started when I began that podcast, or on Twitter at, at IC underscore Greg, it's most likely to be the Sermon on the Mount. But on this particular Poem Sunday sermon, he didn't quote that. He picked a different passage. I think it's kind of interesting the thought process he did. Vonnegut essentially suggests that Jesus told an incredible joke, and that the incredible joke that he told has been totally misunderstood by Christians for all of these years, and that from his perspective, if he communicated nothing more in a message to a congregation, it would be that he wants the church to understand the joke. I've actually referred to this passage once in the past, talking about Shane Claiborne as a different drummer. It's the point where Jesus says, the poor will always be with you. What Claiborne did with that was he basically said what Jesus meant is that the poor will always be among you. And so often he gets that quote thrown in his face by Christians, by conservative Christians, who come from very wealthy churches, who may have moved out of inner city neighborhoods because they don't want the poor to be anywhere near them. Right now, the religious right spends a great deal of its energy pretending that the poor don't exist or perhaps never existed or that their existence is unimportant. And yet Jesus is saying, the poor should always be with you. That's Claiborne's perspective. But Vonnegut tells it differently. First, let me just kind of set the stage a little bit by quoting just a little bit from John chapter 12. A woman has come to the place where Jesus is sitting, and she's anointing his head and his feet with some very expensive perfume. Judas objects to this and says, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said to him, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. This is the justification, sadly, that some Christians use for saying there's no reason that we should fret over improving the lives of people who are really genuinely struggling, because after all in the Bible, Jesus says there's always going to be poor people, there's nothing you can do about it. Well, Shane Claiborne gives us a good, sound Christian theological reason for thinking that's not what Jesus meant. What Jesus meant is that you should always be doing something about the poor, you should always be out there working and ministering with them side by side. That's a theological perspective. Vonnegut treats it more like a joke, and here's what he says. Quoting Vonnegut, This is too much for the envious hypocrite Judas, who says, trying to be more Catholic than the Pope, Hey, this is very unchristian. Instead of wasting your stuff on feed, we should have sold it and give the money to the poor people. To which Jesus replies in Aramaic, Hey, Judas, don't worry about it. There'll still be plenty of poor people left long after I'm gone. This is about what Mark Twain and Abraham Lincoln would have said under similar circumstances. If Jesus did in fact say that, it is a divine black joke well-suited to the occasion. It says everything about hypocrisy and nothing about the poor. It is a Christian joke, I would say, from Christ himself. But Vonnegut says, which allows Jesus to remain civil to Judas, but chide him about his hypocrisy all the same. Judas, don't worry about it. There will still be plenty of poor people long after I'm gone. 
This is a perspective of somebody who would not describe himself in the common vernacular as a believer. And yet, having a message with that power being shared by somebody like Vonnegut is in some ways more impactful coming from somebody who isn't, quote-unquote, within the church. One of the friends I met up with a couple of times when we were in England put a Facebook post out that I know he intended for me to see, intended for me to read, asking a question about the commonalities between Christian mythology, parables, stories of Jesus, and the worldviews of other, more even more ancient religions. What does it mean if there's more than one flood myth running through more than one religious construct, for example? Or what does it mean if the notion of death and resurrection isn't just a Christian idea, that it's, it's happened in parallel to Christianity in other parts of the globe? Is that a concern? Is that a problem? And what I told him was that from my perspective, it may do nothing more than simply confirm that from a religious perspective, and we can interpret the word religion as mythology, we can say that it runs deeper than that, but from a religious perspective, some of these quote-unquote truths that are spiritual rather than physical in nature run so deeply through our collective unconscious that of course they appear in multiple different ways. You could make an argument that there are elements of the movie Titanic. John Eldridge makes this argument that for whatever its flaws, Titanic tells a story about someone sacrificing his life to save others. That when Jesus says, no greater friend you'll find than one who lays down his life to save another, he perhaps isn't saying it for the first time in recorded human history. Certainly not saying it for the last time in recorded human history. And that's perfectly okay. The stories are perhaps bigger than that. But it's interesting what happens when Kurt Vonnegut presented what was going to be his master's thesis. Yes, his master's thesis in anthropology, which was rejected by the University of Chicago. Essentially what he did was he graphed out um, every story that he could think of along intersecting axis where he was measuring things like good fortune and ill fortune and the beginning of the story and the end of the story and simply charting the course of a story on graph paper as if it was in some ways not unlike what we might call modern choral music. But what happened along the way is he got to the graph of Cinderella. And it's at this point that I want to share once again from Vonnegut's book, Palm Sunday. Quoting Vonnegut. Then I had another look at the graph I had drawn of Western civilization's most enthusiastically received story, which is Cinderella. At this very moment, a thousand writers must be telling the story again in one form or another. This very book is a Cinderella story of a kind. I confess that I was daunted by the graph of Cinderella, and was tempted to leave it out of my thesis, since it seemed to prove that I was full of crap. It seemed too complicated and arbitrary to be a representative artifact, it lacked the simple grace of a pot or a spearhead. And so he draws Cinderella, which is essentially a staircase rising upward and then taking a dramatic plunge and then dwelling at the basement for a while and then having an arc shifting up to its highest point. In other words, Cinderella's story is one of toil and drudgery, but she meets her fairy godmother. Her fairy godmother takes her story to the highest good that she's experienced in the plot. But, at the stroke of midnight at the night of the ball, the cliff falls for Cinderella. She loses all of the magic that she's been given. Her sweet prince doesn't know who she is. And she returns to the situation that she was in before, perhaps worse off than she was before, because now she has a memory of what could have been, 
or what was to come. And of course, we know how the story ends. The story ends with a sudden moment of salvation of sorts, when her prince figures out who she is after all. Once again, quoting Vonnegut, The steps you see are all the presents the fairy godmother gave to Cinderella. The ball gown, the slippers, the carriage, and so on. The sudden drop is the stroke of midnight at the ball. Cinderella is in rags again. All the presents have been repossessed. But then the prince finds her and marries her, and she is infinitely happily ever after. She gets all the stuff back and then some. A lot of people think the story is trash, and on graph paper, I'll tell you, it certainly looks like trash. But then I said to myself, wait a minute. Those steps at the very beginning look a lot like the creation myth of virtually every society on Earth. And then I saw that the stroke of midnight looked exactly like the unique creation myth in the Old Testament. And then I saw that the rise to bliss at the end was identical with the expectation of redemption as expressed in primitive Christianity. The tales were identical. Greg speaking, you could almost make the claim that even within the New Testament itself, you've got that pattern. Think of yourself as a disciple following Jesus, only to see that at the moment when you thought he was about to be the Messiah and set his kingdom free and get rid of the Romans and and eradicate the corruption and the, the leadership of the Jewish religious society, instead he gets crucified? you got to tell you that between Friday afternoon and sometime Sunday late in the morning would have felt a lot like Cinderella at the ball at the stroke of midnight when all the magic has disappeared. And of course, the resurrection appearances and the ascension that's described in the first part of the book of Acts certainly, well again, it looks a lot like the Cinderella story. So I guess what I'm saying is that not only am I not concerned that in some ways elements of Jewish and Christian myths look a lot like the same myths you'll find in tribal religions in places like South America, Africa, and South Asia, I'm also not the least bit concerned that all of these look a lot like Cinderella. It may mean that there is some truth, even in a story like Cinderella, that goes beyond our human comprehension that if we think of Cinderella as just a kid's story, or if we think of the Bible as just a work of mythology, we might want to stop thinking horizontally and start looking vertically and asking questions about why it is there are so many myths that share so many common presumptions. The answer might just be something we would describe as truth, with a capital T. It might be enough for now to sum up with the idea that a different drummer whose religious beliefs are as foreign to mine as as my religious beliefs would be from anyone who's part of a different religion like Buddhism, for example, share very similar ideas about time, very similar ideas about mythology. And to me, that in and of itself is inherently interesting. It speaks to something going on above the page, above just the written record of the story we're experiencing. Think about any obituary you've ever written and ask yourself whether you think it's really true that the account, no matter how comprehensive, no matter how long, no matter how well written from just a grammar perspective or a prose perspective, does that really really get anywhere near telling the story of that person's life? That obituary is as ineffective at describing the horizontal experience of time that we might call the life of that individual is our understanding of horizontal time is when you compare it to the grandeur 
and the eternal meaning of a vertical perspective. No, none of us will ever be able to comprehend that perspective. But there's something incredibly small-minded about presuming that anything I can't easily comprehend must not exist. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. The website at www.inappropriateconversations.org has comments for each show with show notes enabled there. And as I mentioned earlier, you can also reach me on Facebook and on Twitter. Thanks for listening.